0: Michaela Pauchner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, stitcher and TuneIn in radio subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released i'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor martin industries for supporting our no-till farmer influencers and innovators podcast series since 1991 martin industries has designed manufactured and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L dot com. Betsy Bauer, an agronomist for Series Solutions in Lafayette, Indiana, sees no-till and cover crops as solutions to helping farmers weather the storms and other variables of climate change. As part of a new task force focused on agriculture as a climate solution, She's serving as a conduit between policymakers, researchers, and producers. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lessiter talks with Bauer about the task force and some of the hottest areas in no-till farming, from carbon sequestration to biologicals and more. Bauer also offers her advice for combating the biggest mistakes she's seen no-tillers make over her 25 years as an agronomist and how to start growing cover crops on your farm.
1: We're talking to Betsy. Tell us about your position and what you do every day in your job.
2: Well, my name is Betsy Bauer, and I'm an agronomist for Siri Solutions. And and sort of what does that mean? That means (laughs) I'm really one of these lucky people that don't necessarily have to take an order and and get it done, but I get to influence a lot of acres. I work in an area of southwest Indiana uh, in about nine counties. So I work with conservation agronomy on farms as well as irrigation recommendations with nutrient management, cover crops, nutrient management overall, and corn and soybeans with my background of about 25 years, sort of that technical source to my salesmen and branch managers.
1: So where are you located?
2: So I I consult mostly in the area that's going to be from about Terre Haute to Vincennes, Indiana, and southwest Indiana.
1: So how many acres are you kind of overlooking during the season?
2: It's going to be in that 50,000 acre range with half of them being corn and half of them being beans. Because of some of the things I do for for each customer, it's going to be different things to different customers. So on one farm, I might be doing a lot with irrigation. On the next farm, it's going to be nutrient management. With K. on the next farm, it's going to be helping with covers.
1: Right. So
2: it's just a, a wide variety of things.
1: So did you grow up on an Indiana
2: farm? I did not grow up on an Indiana <laughs> farm. I grew up in a small community in northwestern Indiana by the name of Hamlet in Stark County. But my father was uh, worked for the local cooperative and and uh agriculture was always in my blood. So I knew that I was gonna have to do something with agriculture or I just wouldn't be happy. And so agronomy uh just really uh interested me. Um so went that route, went to Purdue and got in a agronomy degree in crop and soil science, and then went on to the University of Nebraska and got a master's in agronomy, and then came back to the cooperative system and have been with the cooperative system over 25 years, with about a year working for Zen- Zeneca when it was Zeneca. Sure.
1: Well, that's like Sagenta and Zeneca. They've been a sponsor of all 30 of our no-till national no-tillage conferences, but they've had about five or six company names while they've done that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So So
1: how'd you get started with no-till and when did that happen?
2: Oh, that happened when I was uh, a young buck as a crop specialist uh, in the Terre Haute area. And a lot of my customers uh, were interested in no-till. That was In the early 90s, and and cash receipts on the farm weren't necessarily ideal. So guys were figuring out ways of, of being able to farm what they could, a little less labor. It was more on the economics at that point in time, more at reducing labor because labor was hard to find. It's still hard to find. But uh, there were certainly customers that the, the banker sort of said to them, you're going to have to figure out another way to farm. You know, mm-hmm. these large tractors, this extra labor isn't going to catch it. And so that's when a lot of um, the no tillage was born in Southwest Indiana. And so I wanted to help them be successful. And so it was all part in what customers wanted to do, and I wanted to to learn along with them. And then with some of the research from the universities, understand maybe where a direction we needed to go and help them be successful.
1: Double cropping must be important down in that area, right?
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Double crop soybeans.
1: This -hmm. would be wheat and barley ahead of soybeans or something else?
2: It would just be wheat ahead of soybeans uh, for the most part. Yeah, not too much barley in that neck of the woods. But then we, I mean, we will get three crops in two years right. on a lot of acres. We can plant fairly early, um, and so it would be corn followed by a wheat double crop soybean uh, fields in some of the sandier soils. So wheat's come and gone a little bit. We still have decent amount of wheat acres because it's good crop for some of our acres. But it certainly has reduced over the years.
1: And there's some places up in northwest Ohio who are growing some barley in double crop because they found a market for distilleries. Looking for yes. barley. So, looking back on 20 years, what are a couple of the biggest mistakes you saw no tillers making or something somebody today starting out could avoid?
2: Yeah, some of the bigger mistakes uh, that I see and still see oftentimes just because there's not enough days to get the work done is planning when soils are too wet. I, I know a farm is never going to be perfect throughout the whole farm, but open seed slots that just allow some of those critters and or crop protection to get in Um, and that just doesn't start that seed off uh, well as well as the the sidewall compaction on some of that when we're planting a little wet. And some of the other things um, I would have said is, you know, ensuring that we've got good nutrients early, so using starter fertilizers, especially when in corn to really ensure that we've got corn off to a good start. Either some early side dress or a little bit of starter, I feel like is still a big practice that can ensure a little bit more success on no-till corn. Yeah, but
1: we got some universities who say it doesn't seem to pay. (laughs) Uh,
2: understand. Well, you know, there are years that that it may not necessarily always pay, but where it does pay is with a good, healthy crop that's going to, be able to withstand, oh, when we get some just not wonderful growing conditions, Right. working through some of those things.
1: So, USDA announced that there's going to be a crop insurance payment for split nitrogen applications.
2: You know, we've worked with a lot of growers on splitting that nitrogen application, Mm -hmm. looking at just a little, some up front, followed by side dress. I think it will have an impact on some farmers for sure. Yeah. Um as I said we've worked hard at at trying to be more efficient overall but there's lots of room to improve. You know not sure. all customers are doing it so I think that's going to be a good thing. Yes.
1: What can you tell no tillers that they ought to be doing there even better than they are right now?
2: Look for practices that that are going to be additive to what you do, and it's it's a system. Most no tillers understand that it's a right. system. They change to a system and learn the logistics. And it's still some things that you can improve if you can incorporate some cover crops into your no till system. If you can spoon feed some of your nutrition, that's some of the things that that uh, we've found um, just through tissue sampling and and following those, that nutrition, especially on some of those soils that are a little sandier in nature, but we're finding that it, it follows through even on some of our silt loams, is that, uh, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket regarding nutrition. If you have, an opportunity that you can split some of that application. Even if it's P and K, there's some benefits that can be derived from splitting some application, doing some spoon feeding. Nitrogen and sulfur are other good ones that split application, looking later into the season, can be a benefit. Of course, we still need some soil moisture, some rainfall to move it into the profile, but those are some of the things that we've learned over the last several years that has been helpful. And other practices that no-tillers can certainly think about adding.
1: Well, we talked a little about your experience with no-till. Let's talk about uh, climate change. You were a member of a task force of three agronomy and crop and soil groups. Why don't you tell me a little about what you've been doing and what that group's been doing on climate change and how it affects no-tillers?
2: What that group has been doing on climate changes is the three societies, the American Society of Agronomy, the Crop Science Society of America, and the Soil Science Society of America along with uh, certified crop advisors, of which I was a certified crop advisor, sure. got together on a panel. And it was to develop strategies, recommendations to address climate change on our working lands. You know, the group was getting together to, to have some suggestions, have a statement about where we need to go with agronomic research regarding how the research done, as well as the infrastructure of that research, so that we're doing more working together uh, on agronomic research and being sure that we've got the infrastructure set up so that data is easily accessible to everyone.
1: So, how serious do you think this climate change situation is right now?
2: And I think the changes have been over time for sure, and it certainly seems like every year we've got some storms that seems like they wallop a punch or they wallop a punch a little bit more often than what we had right. anticipated. Uh, we need to be looking at uh, the way that we do things and doing our part to ensure that we're collecting the moisture that we can collect that our crops can withstand some of those heavy storms and and such. So,
1: when it comes to the moisture whether you got too much or too little, it seems like no-till strip-till and cover crops can be a benefit.
2: I would agree. I use soil moisture probes in irrigation but then also in the off season I've done a little bit of work of putting them in no-till soil versus no-till and cover crops and what I can see is that that we do see more water because you've got a growing crop because you've got a growing root that we can um, get more water into the soil on any year, um, and, and soils will be different um, from sandy soils to salt loam soils, but snow-till is going to uh, reduce the amount of moisture loss that we have, and so when we get into some of those dry areas, we've got the ability for those roots to go down deep and really extract some of the moisture, and using moisture probes, again, putting them in some no-till versus conventional till fields, I've been able to see that the roots go deeper, the roots access more water over a given period of time when we start to get dry. I got to do that within the last couple of years and it was really interesting. The Root uptake sort of stopped in at about 12 to 18 inches on these conventionally tilled beans. But in the no-till beans, we pulled out water longer.
1: Well, we used to have researchers and educators say that one of the problems with no-till is we got shallower roots. But that doesn't seem to necessarily be true anymore, right?
2: No, it doesn't. I work with a lot of no-till fields on corn and soybeans both. And I've got soil moisture probes where we're irrigated. And then sometimes I put some in some non-irrigated fields just to look for roots where the customer is willing to pay for it and want to understand more. I'm finding deep roots with with no-till.
1: I remember in 1993, which was the first year we started the National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis, and we had Dwayne Beck from Pierre South Dakota talk, Mm -hmm. and I remember a comment he made. He started his presentation by saying, you no-tillers in the eastern Corn Belt, no-till to get rid of the water. And in South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop there is. Mm-hmm. Just kind of what you said, because with the no-till, it's not running off. You're getting it down in the ground where you can use it.
2: And what I find even on irrigation is is that we irrigate later into the season in the no-till fields, and we stop a little earlier because of the resources that those fields have.
1: Will you be putting on as much water on the no-till fields totally or not?
0: Typically not, no.
1: Right, so you save there yep. too. Right.
0: Yep. We'll come back to Frank and Betsy Bauer in a moment but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, Fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at martintill.com. That's M A R T I N T I L L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Leseter with a little known no till farmer fact.
3: Well, as we've said in previous podcasts, no-tillers are using fewer colders on their planter than in the past. It's down considerably. People are being able to no-till without using colders. But if you are using a colder, the other manufacturer people say you want to make sure you adjust it and run it above the seed depth. And a lot of farmers never seem to adjust the depth of their colders. Put a new V opener blade on your colder and put brand new colder blades on and then level the planter and adjust the colder so it's one quarter to three eighths of an inch above the bottom of the seed depth. Then at the end of the season, go back and adjust as needed for the next year before you put your planter away for the winter.
0: Now let's get back to Frank Lessiter and Betsy Bauer as they discuss climate change and how farmers are part of the solution to this pressing problem.
1: So, what about carbon sequestration? They got farmers interested in it. Going to do it, or they're holding back, or what?
2: I got a little bit of everything. So we certainly <laughs> we uh, helped farmers participate in the True Territory Carbon Program, and had about fifteen guys that were interested in documenting the practice change that they had done and trying to get an estimate on how much carbon they've sequestered. And that's certainly still of interest to growers as an is it the whole reason that they want to make a practice change? Probably not overall, but certainly it could be an additional revenue stream on their farm. It may build the business case for some customers. Um, I think that's yet to be determined, but certainly we've had interest in in, in one of the questions that I get asked quite often in the last few months.
1: Well, one of the problems some no-tillers have right now is the additionality problem because they Mm -hmm. don't think they're going to get credit for what they've already been doing.
2: And that's always concerning, there's no doubt. But I did hear one of my no-tillers say, well, you know, I went to no-till for a reason. I figured out the season (laughs) for my farm for a reason, right? Part of the task force that that I'm on is carbon sequestration as well as covers and no-till. Will be prominent in some of the suggestions now, of course it's being able to have the you know certified crop advisors are certainly you know, provide the relationship and provide that opportunity for to translate sort of what the science is, not only do the translation so to speak but also you know work with customers one on one help support the decision that they made by watching it all year long and having some uh, ability to cuss and discuss as as needed.
1: <laughs> you just pointed right. out that everything we've got to do, communication is still part of it and getting it done right?
2: Yes, yes, and being sure that the communication is open from the researchers who guys to guys that are gonna put it into the practice. And, and the CCA, certified crop advisors or CCAs certainly can can bridge that gap. Right. But it's going to take now uh, working with different partners on all of this, some of those that we that we think may not be partners really truly are partners in the long run when I think of all the people involved in conservation from uh, quail and pheasants forever as well as the nature conservancy and of course we know n r c s and uh agricultural extension all of us working together is what's going to help move some of this ball forward and 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 working with all the stuff that you've done and just the whole industry
1: everybody's done something right so last week i talked to you and you told me you were out doing soil samples are we going to see any new developments in soil samples are we going to look for different things is carbon sequestering going to get involved in soil samples
2: Oh, sure. And certainly the program that I helped with farmers on this year certainly did a deep soil sample looking for organic carbon. I think there's, there's still a lot to learn with all of that. And, and we know that every year environmentally is different. So can we measure all that we're doing? And I'm, I'm certain that we can, but I, I still think that we're going to keep learning all about that. I think there's going to be some new exciting things on some of the soil DNA extraction things that we might be able to be doing in the future. So that can also provide some opportunities for carbon as well as potentially pests that we've got in the soil that we can make a better assessment of because we can look at what DNA is in the soil.
1: Farmers going to be willing to pay a few dollars more per acre for this?
2: Oh, I think so. It's
1: back to communication. <laughs> you got to convince them.
2: <laughs> yeah, back to communication and then giving them the power to help them. Typically, more information, if it's good information, to, to improve their, their, their bottom line is going to be things that they're going to be interested in and right. so they're certainly interested in investing where they feel like there's going to be a payoff with some better knowledge and some better right. practices.
1: So I see another part of this was, uh, which hasn't been compiled yet, but they were going to survey 700 society members and what well, they hope to learn from the survey
2: probably where they feel the the research and the infrastructure needs to be for agronomy to answer regarding climate change. So it's going to be sort of more of a survey, okay, how do you feel is this important long term overall on various aspects of agronomy.
1: So when you and other certified crop advisors work with people, you're writing plans for practically everything, what are you going to do different that brings in climate change?
2: First of all, those farmers that I work with that may not necessarily be no-till talk about the virtue of reducing tillage. We're losing the most valuable resource, which is topsoil, for those that that, that um, are tilling, and, and that's certainly where some of the dollars that they've invested are. So certainly no-till would be number one, trying to keep that soil in place because of the value that it provides to the whole farm, as well as where they've put a lot of their resources. It could be no-till, strip-till. Um, sure. either one of those two. But then talk about incorporating cover crops because incorporating cover crops, as we found with several customers in Indiana, certainly a, a, a little quicker way to get through the first few years of no-till when we're changing that, that soil environment to a very different environment. So incorporating uh, cover crops where they can and starting slow. Don't start with the 10-way mixes. You start with something easy that you can manage and See how it works for you.
1: So if you had somebody that was uh, maybe minimum tillage was going to go to no-till, would you encourage them to go to cover crops right away at the same time?
2: There's a possibility that they could. It depended on what their goals were for the farm. There are mechanisms that certainly help to go no-till a little quicker than what you anticipated by starting with a a cover crop and or starting with one no-till action and then incorporating the cover crop following that. It just depends on what they're willing to bite off, what they feel like they can manage. You certainly don't want to set up someone to manage something that they may not have the skill set or the time to manage.
1: One of the hot areas right now seems to be biologicals. Are you working with some of those?
2: I'm certainly working with some some biologicals, and I do think that can be the next frontier that we're going to continue to learn about. And We need to be playing with biologicals, whether they are products that are Uh, able to to infect a root and allow for uh, nitrogen to get into the root a little better. Or if it's things that people may consider that are going to improve the soil and or allow some of the nutrients, uh, some of the claims of some of the biologicals, the nutrients to become more available. But we certainly need to be working with, with those and taking yield measurements, watching residue, some of those things. It could allow us to work with our common crop nutrients differently if they can Really do the job that they're claimed to do and work with our crops and work with our other fertilizers I'm usually open. You you never learn anything until you try it, right?
1: Exactly. You can even if it doesn't work you learn something
2: That's exactly right
1: Well you mentioned residue management. We got more people trying no-till continuous corn. They think sometimes they got too much residue. You got people still bailing off wheat straw. Give us some ideas on residue management with no-till or strip-till.
2: So residue management, certainly there are years when it can be somewhat of an issue. When there's a lot of residue, we don't get the seed to soil contact. I know some of my guys, that I work with look for additional things they can add to that combine head to maybe the stalk stompers or Mm -hmm. reduce sizing that residue so that we can get more microbes to break it down. We've tried a biological on some of those heavy stalks um, this past year. Uh, probably started a little later um, into the year and we were a little drier. So we know we need moisture and we need some temperature for some of those things to work. But there's a lot of things so that we can start that degradation process a little earlier. I'm not a big fan of putting on nitrogen on stalks because now you know some of our phosphorus products do allow a little bit of nitrogen and you're already setting up for the next year. And so some of those can be helpful, but just getting some residue across the soil and let the microbes naturally do their job is sort of where I see guys going.
1: Yeah. Talk a little about strip till. Is it growing in your area or what's going on?
2: Oh, it seems to be staying a little bit the same. We do have a branch that does do some fall strip tilling for people, so we do have that within our uh, or series Solutions branches. And I see guys excited. I see a lot of farmers excited about it. Now, uh, you know, I get several that are really interested and they think, well, that's going to be the perfect of both worlds. Get sure. A little bit of tillage around the seed, warm it up to get better seed to soil contact, maybe get a little nutrition put underneath the soil. Uh, but it also takes some logistics. Um and and uh one of my farmers of years ago said that was his favorite way to farm, but he was got large enough that the logistics did get a little bit difficult. Yeah. So if you can figure out the logistics, strip tilling certainly does allow you to 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 get that seed up and going fairly quickly because of that strip. And so where they can make it work, where they can buy a used bar, um, or if they can get some of the strip tilling done, it it certainly is a good practice.
1: Do you find really large acreage farmers Prefer the no-till or strip-till versus minimum tillage, or you know, if you have a big acreage and you make a mistake, it's it's a big mistake. Are they just as willing to try no-till and strip-till as say somebody with fifteen hundred acres, and when they got ten thousand acres?
2: I think it has to do with mindset mostly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've, I work for some fairly large farms that are. Several thousand acres until it's just still part of the backbone of what they are doing. And and if I could really get some no-till on some of this, once I help manage, I think it could be really an improvement. But it's more mindset. I've got farmers I work with that are 5,000 or more acres, and they're all no-till. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's figuring out your logistics, figuring out your process, figuring sure. out what works. So I'm giving you a, a not really a wonderful answer. But. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's, it's what's happening, right? Are you uh, seeing people in your area trying to plant green in the growing cover crops or not?
2: Oh, certainly, yes. And, and it's in, in some of those operations that have been no-till for several years and maybe sure. even cover crops for a few years. You can go too quick on, on planting green with, with some farms when, when they aren't ready, when they don't have the ability to manage like it needs to be managed or it's too soon into that transitional time mm-hmm. period. But several acres just south of where I happen to live, we're planting green this year. I've had a customer plant green for the first time and we applied the burn down right after the beans got up and it looks great. So you want to take it slow and easy to have success.
1: Another thing that comes up, it's been traditional to plant corn before soybeans, but we've got some no-tillers today that are thinking they're better off planting soybeans first. What's going on in your area?
2: We had a, a nice dry early spring. Uh, conditions were fairly cool but it was dry and so we did see a lot of soybeans planted early. Yeah, We had some some issues with some emergence in some of those in some of our no-till areas but I think it was more just because of the season. The other thing I would probably recommend early on early in April even in southern Indiana is maybe to take that feeding right up another 10,000 or so, just because you don't know what the season is. Now, early planted beans usually don't need as high a seeding rate as you would think because you don't really want them to get tall and leggy. But certainly this year is, is we had some seed corn maggot issues and things that were just a little bit more challenging. Next year is going to be a different year.
1: Well, you were one of our No-Till Innovator Award winners a few years back, and I know you've got a lot of experience with cover crops. Why don't you tell me what you've got going on in cover crops and how long you've been doing it and what's happening in your area?
2: Well, in our area, when we talk with uh, farmers um, on the farm, logistics is still the biggest issue in getting everything done timely, and they don't necessarily always have the farm labor. So with that being said, cereal rye is, pretty much our traditional go-to cover crop. It's a great cover crop, but I certainly see more guys interested in maybe doing some cereal, rye, and wheat, or if we can get oats out early enough, reducing that cereal rye load with a little bit of some oats We're going to have some guys try some balanza clover uh, this year. They're pretty excited about doing some of those things. We've done a little bit of rape across large operations, and we've gotten more guys that are interested in annual ryegrass. Zero rye is the backbone, but what I've heard from some of my branch colleagues is that cover crops are, because we planted early and we can get out a little earlier, we're going to have the opportunity to, to, to have a good cover crops here. And yeah. So we've had had more guys talk about cover crops and getting seed in place. Um, barley, have been adding some barley in some spots. So so we're adding things along, but cereal rice still seems to be the backbone. I would say probably 80% of our acres, maybe even 85 Still goes towards towards rye because you can plant it a little later. You don't get the the growth in the spring, but you, or in the fall, but you certainly do in the spring.
1: Yeah, and the price is reasonable too.
2: Yeah, the price is reasonable. Although you can do some annual ryegrass with some other cover crops for fairly reasonable prices too, depending on the rate, of course.
1: Are most people uh, drilling them on, or we got aerial seeding, yeah. or something else?
2: We've got a little bit of everything. <laughs> I wish it could be everything being drilled on. Uh, that would be my choice, but yeah. uh, the manpower and the logistics don't allow for that. So we do have some vertical tillage, and we certainly have some some cereal rye being seeded with some fertilizer, which in, in the big scheme of things allows that cereal rye to get up and growing, which is, allows us to get some some different top growth and root growth, which is not a negative necessarily.
1: How are they uh, terminating these covers in the spring?
2: We're getting more people that are crimping, uh, Mm -hmm. but that's still a fairly small practice. Most of it is going to be some chemical termination. We're starting cover crops within the last 15 years. Guys are willing to wait a little longer to do some of the termination. So when we started cover crops, as soon as it greened up, we were terminating. But I do see guys that are allowing it to live a little longer because of the way that it can compete with wheat. Some of my guys will say, you know, I didn't intend to plant green, but <laughs> but I sort of needed to plant green this year and I only needed one application of herbicide. It's a work in progress, Frank. Just always a work in progress. Right, right. You sort of take what Mother Nature gives you and try to make it work
0: no matter what happens. Thanks for tuning into the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lessiter once more.
3: question we get quite often from uh, no-till farmer readers is what's going on with nitrogen? We continue to use less nitrogen to produce more corn. And this has been going on for many years. Today we have a lot of uh, no-tillers who are able to produce a bushel of corn with less than one pound of nitrogen per acre. So the over-application of fertilizer is still a major concern. And around the world, researchers report that the improved nitrogen use efficiency could boost rice yields by as much as 22%. And adding irrigation would boost yields by another 21%, which will provide much of the nutrition for the world's growing population over the next few decades.
0: Thanks to Frank Lessiter and Betsy Bauer for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at mpockner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email those questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Pogner. Thank you for listening.